Uh, so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And the big idea for uh, our time tonight is that exhibiting humility allows us to experience the presence of God. Exhibiting humility allows us to experience the presence of God. One of my favorite scenes in a movie is from the movie Miracle. I think it came out in 2004 uh, about the miracle that took place on ice in, on, the, on the ice in 1980. And uh, when the coach came, he was a former player, he came to coach the USA Olympics team. Uh, in the first practice, he had each of the uh, players introduce themselves because for whatever reason, they couldn't have professional players. And so they had to get a lot of college players. And so he wanted uh, them to introduce themselves because as it turns out, a lot of them were rivals in, uh, in college as they played, but now they were on the same team. And so he wanted them to know who they were, where they were from, and what college they played with. And early on in their training and practices and even scrimmages, I think it was Norway. They were playing, they were playing Norway. And after the game, coach was not very happy with the team. And so everybody was leaving and he said, hey, look, if you're not going to work on the ice, you're going to work right now. Go to the line. And so they have to do sprints on the ice. And so he, they get on the line and he says, go. And, they, and so they do one sprint and they get back to the line. And he, he starts talking to them about how they're not playing as a team and about how they need to play as a team if they're going to compete in the Olympics. And then he says again. And so they do another sprint. They come back and he starts going into them again as a coach would do. And then he says again. And people are starting to wonder what's going on. And he says again. And again, and again, and so much so that the assistant coach looked at him and said, Herb, come on, what are you doing here? He said, blow the whistle. Again, uh, finally, somebody that worked at the rink there said, hey, I gotta shut the lights off. He said, I, I'll, don't worry, I'll lock up. So the lights go off, and if you've played sport, you're like, okay, it's time, he's gonna stop. No, he says again, and they keep going they're doubled over. Some of them are throwing up. He says again, one more time, assistant coach says, hey, hey, they don't need to do this. And then all of a sudden, you hear Mike Ruzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. And then the, the video pans to the coach. He says, who do you play for? He says, I play for the United States of America. He said, that's it. Y'all are done, y'all can go home. You see, in that moment, coach had to teach those young, hot-headed college students, you have to check yourself at the door. You don't matter anymore. This is a team sport. We represent the team, we represent our country. And you have to humble yourself. You have to play your role and you have to do exactly what you need to do, what the team needs to, for you to do for us to be successful. Humility is very important in sports. It's much more important as we think about spending time with God and walking with him. Here in this text, we're gonna see that humility leads us and allows us to experience God's presence. So if you look there at the text, we're gonna read chapter four, verses one through 10. But we're gonna spend the majority of our time in verses five through 10. 
And we're gonna see that humility leads us to submission and humility leads us to repentance. So look at verse one in chapter four. This is what it says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. God, have your way in our time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Exhibiting humility allows us to experience God's presence. So I want to just kind of walk through verses five and six, and then I want us to look at what humility does in our life. If you go back to verse five, it says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he, which he has made to dwell in us. If you notice at the very beginning of chapter four and even towards the end of chapter three, uh, James gives us some ideas about what's going on inside. I'll read some of those, starting in chapter three, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. And so James is helping the church to understand that your sin and your pleasures and your evil desires that are inside of you, they come out into outward sins. He goes on and he talks about the source being their sinful pleasures, their, their envy, their lust, their wrong motives, and how it leads to disorder. And he says, when you, when you give yourself over to these things, you're actually befriending the world and not God. And so he appeals to them with scripture. He tries to compel them to repent and to confess by saying, if you are humble, you can experience God's presence. He, he appeals to scripture. That's what he says in, in verse five. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He does that because he understands that the church is going to say, yes, the scripture has purpose. He understands that, that we will say that scripture has purpose. And this is what the scripture says. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. We see in this verse, God's longing to be with his people. When we're saved, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't want to share us with the world. 
He doesn't want to share us with our sinful desires and pleasures. And so he says he jealously longs for the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be in our presence and he wants us to be in his presence. So how can we do that? Let's look at verse six real quick first. It says this, but he gives a greater grace. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? He's just talked about here in the first four verses how they're, they're adulterous people and they're sinful. And he says, God gives this greater grace and that is his presence. God is making himself available to us, but he's making himself available to people who are humble. God's grace in our life, it's himself. There's a parable that talks about seeking and asking and knocking. And Jesus says, if a father will give his children what they need, how much more will our heavenly father give us the Holy Spirit for those who ask? We're called and even commanded by Paul in Ephesians to, to be filled with the Spirit. God wants to be with us. He wants us to be in his presence. But here in the text, we're gonna see that that's available for people who are humble, who are humble. So how do we experience God's presence? Number one, uh, we exhibit a humility that leads to submission. A humility that leads to submission. Look at verse seven. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We must submit to God. He's in charge, he's on his throne and we're called to submit to him. In the same breath, we're called to resist the devil. Now, as a pastor, uh, many of my members and other friends, they call me and, and, and they tell me that the devil's after them or uh, they're experiencing the spiritual warfare. I believe that, but this is a wonderful promise, amen? God tells us that if we do resist the devil, that he will flee from us. Now, he may come back at some point. He may come after some family or our church, but, but the promise is this, is if that we resist him, he will flee from us. And we're called to submit to God, resist the devil. But if we submit to the devil, we'll be resisting God. How many times have I come in on a Sunday morning having had myself submitting to the devil throughout the week or maybe the day before and not even knowing it because I've been resisting God. This humility will lead to submission. Now, the devil's powerful. We read that through the scriptures, especially in the story of Job. And uh, we are no match for him, but our savior is, amen? And that's why we're called to resist him, but submit ourselves to the Lord. This idea of submission, we're not really good at it. Speed limits, well, we just go right on by. That doesn't matter to us. Stop signs, in my neighborhood, I'll just roll through them. I'll make sure I look both ways. If you're a student here, your teacher says, don't talk in class. That was always a really a big struggle for me. Just go to a little league baseball game. Uh, there's tons of people not submitting to the umpire, amen? Maybe that's you. I mean, Really, parents should wear like an umpire suit instead of their child's team uh, shirt. Uh, that's what we see there. The, the submission is so difficult. 
And God's calling us to that. It takes humility. It takes humility. And when we submit to him in humility, we get to experience his presence. And, and what better way? It's the only way to experience renewal and revival in our own hearts. So how can we submit to God? Very simply, he calls us to obey his word. To obey his word, we're called to know it, but, but he calls us to obey and trust in his word, to walk by faith. In his word, he tells us to forgive. Are you here tonight and struggling to forgive someone who's wronged you? In his word, he's called us to reconcile or to even be peacemakers, to help other people reconcile. Is there anyone that, that you need to reconcile with that's here tonight or maybe you need to reconcile with them and, and they're not here? That's how we submit to God. God's called us to make disciples of all nations. That means here in Nashville and to the nations. And, and have, you, have you ever considered what your role is in making disciples? When's the last time that, that we genuinely tried to persuade somebody to place their faith in Jesus Christ? Or, or when's the last time we invited someone to an event or to our church where we know that the gospel is going to be preached? It's part of obeying God. It's part of submitting ourselves to him. God calls us to be generous people with our time, with our money, with our talents, uh, with the gifts that he's given us. He's called us to be generous people. These are ways that we obey him. These are ways that we submit ourselves to him. He says, pray without ceasing. We're to, we're to pray for one another. We're, we're to bear one another's burdens. These are ways that we can submit to God. These are ways that we obey his word and walk by faith as we think about submitting ourselves to him out of humility. So first... In humility, that leads to submission, we can experience God's presence. He longs to be with us. But secondly, we can experience God's presence through the humility that leads to repentance. And, and submission comes first and then repentance. Look back at the text in verses eight and nine. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. This is repentance language. It's a similar language to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. It says this, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance. In the Old Testament, in Joel chapter two, verses 12 through 13, it says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This is the same type of language that we see here in James. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, some of us might be here tonight, and we're struggling with sin in our life. And we're struggling with sin in our life to a point where we don't want anybody to know. 
We're called to confess one to another. We're called to confess to God. We're called to repent. But as we sit here tonight, we don't want anybody to know. And we're trying to live our life so that God doesn't know what's going on in our life. And we can't imagine we can't imagine drawing near to God because we are afraid that he, that he might not draw near to us. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what's going on in my life. And so, because we believe that other people might not understand, we, we cast that onto God and we're scared to death that if we actually do draw near to God, he's not gonna be there waiting on us. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe that. We have his precious and great promises that are everything you and I need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You think about the story of the prodigal son. Essentially, he goes to his dad and he says, hey, I wish you were dead. You're dead to me. I want my inheritance. Give me what's mine right now. And so he does. Everybody, first century Jews are reading that and they're like blown away. What did he just do? He does that. It affects everybody because he has to give them the things that actually helps the family live. It's their well-being. And so, so he gives it to him. He goes and he sells it off and he, and he spends his time in wild living. And whenever he finally figures out what he's done, he repents and he comes back. And when he comes back, we don't see the father saying, you know what? Your brother's really mad at you. I'm gonna turn you over to your brother. And whatever he wants to do to you, whatever he makes you do, if you can survive that, then maybe we'll have a conversation about you coming back into the family. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even say, hey, look, you can go work here until however long I see fit for you to come back into the family. That's not what happens seems like the father's looking for him every single day. He, he sees him coming in a distance. And like a dignified father, you would think that he would just stand there and wait for his son to come. That's not what he does either. He runs to him. He runs to him. And in his running, you can probably see his knees and his shins and his skin, something that never happened in the first century. This long robe on him, he would never do that. He doesn't care what the community thinks about him in that moment. In fact, he's probably going to get his son before the community kills him. He gets to him. He doesn't just stand there expecting his son to give some type of reason. He falls down on the ground and he embraces him and he's weeping. And he brings him back. He restores him into the family. He tells his brother to get in the fattened calf. Hey, look, we're having a party. The lost son has returned. When you see in the text here where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, rest assured, when you do draw near to him and you confess your sin and you repent from it, he will draw near to you like the father of the prodigal son. He'll embrace you. He cares for you, he longs to be with you and he longs for you to be in his presence. It then says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and, and purify your hearts, 
you double-minded. It reminds us that our repentance, uh, it's gonna have to take place inwardly and outwardly. Remember the selfish ambition that James has already talked about in the envy he's already talked about in the lust he's already talked about. It's led to disorder and to every evil thing and sometimes maybe even murder. And so, and so we see that the evil pleasures and the evil desires and the sinful things in our hearts, they come out and we act upon them. And so that's why he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We have both things going on there. We're sinning on the inside in our hearts because our hearts are wicked. Don't trust your heart, trust the Lord. And then out of those sinful desires, we, we sin outwardly. I don't know what that is for you tonight. I don't know what you're dealing with inwardly and I don't know what that's led you to do outwardly, but God's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to cleanse our hands and he's calling us to purify our hearts. Uh, the way that happens, the way that happens is found right here in verse nine. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. James is helping the church understand what type of attitude they should have toward their sin. They are called to to hate their sin. They are called to mourn their sin. Let the fact that we've grieved God in this way lead us to weeping because we have joined in with the world and, and God's given us his spirit and he jealously longs for the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but we've joined ourselves with the world. Let that grieve us to the point of tears. That's the foundation through which you and I can actually humbly submit to the Lord in repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter five, verses one and two, this is what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. He then says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Instead of mourning this sin, that individual and the church, they've become arrogant. And how easily it is for us to slip into that arrogance when it comes to our, our sin. Go back to chapter three, verse 14. It, it happened there to the church that James is talking to. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, the response is to mourn. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But this is what he says. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Let us not lie to ourselves that it's okay not to mourn the sin that grieves God. And let us repent and cleanse our hands and purify our hearts through, through mourning our sin. Repentance is uh, turning 180 directions. So, so you're going this way towards sin and self and, and, and you're, you're loving that. We need to get to the point to where we mourn it in such a way and that, that we hate it, we hate what it's doing to our relationship with God that we turn around and we start going this way towards God. 
and we we repent from from pride towards humility. We don't don't repent just back from that. We repent towards something, and that that something is God. God calls us to be humble, so we, we repent from pride to humility. We can repent from anxiousness or worry to, to trust. It's what God's calling us to as, as he's helping us understand that we're called to submit in humility that brings repentance. This happens when we draw near to God. It happens whenever he draws near to us. It happens whenever we, we hate our sin that we're not just casual with it. Maybe many of us in the room are casual with our sin. Oh, it's not a big deal. I'll ask for forgiveness and then I'll, I'll keep living my life. No, we're, we're not called to a casual approach to our sin. We're called to mourn it and grieve it and to hate it. Maybe tonight we need to spend some time praying that God would give us a fresh and new and revived attitude towards our sin so that in humility we can repent back towards him. Are, are you involved in regular repentance? What does this mean for us? Are, are you involved in regular repentance? Husbands, are there any husbands in the room who have demeaned their wives or who have not thanked their wives for everything that they do to, to keep everything going? Do you take your wife for granted? Repent. Are there any wives in the room who, who belittle their husband? And don't encourage him. Over time, both of those types of things towards the other relationship, it it creates a hard heart. And soon you, you end up being more roommates than husbands and wives. Do you need to repent from those things? Children, students, teenagers are are you disrespectful? to the authority figures that God has placed in your life. Parents, grandparents, uh, guardians, teachers, coaches. You're called to submit to them and respect them and to, and to follow them. Is that something you need to repent from tonight? As we think about regular repentance, parents, I was preaching this morning. I was actually given the invitation and it just, it just hit me. Like my fuse for my children is like, is like this long. But my fuse for church members and other people, it, it's as long as it needs to be sometimes. Why is that? Parents, are you, are you quick with your kids? Are you, are you angry towards them? Or do you treat them totally different than other people? Do you give them less grace and less mercy than you give to other people? Don't do that. Repent. When I think about evangelism, there's some folks in our church that that they love sharing the gospel with people. They love going on mission trips whenever that's possible. Um, But there's a lot of people in our church that they've not tried to help introduce Jesus to anybody and, and maybe their whole Christian life. And they've, and they've not even tried to, to bring somebody to a place where they can hear a gospel message. Is that you tonight? God calls us to tell people about Jesus. God calls us to make disciples. Maybe that's something that you need to repent from tonight.
As we think about repentance, I don't want you to just think about the outward actions of everything I've just said. What's causing you to do those things that's inside your heart? Is it pride? Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Is it fear? I don't know what it is, but whatever's inside of your heart, do business with God on those things. And then, and only then, start thinking about how that's impacting your outward actions. As we come to a close, I want to point our attention to verse 10. James chapter four, verse 10. It's very interesting. It says this, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I want you to notice something. Go back up to verse six. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As soon as God inspires James to go into this repentance uh, and submission language, as we think about the humility we're called to exhibit to experience God's presence, uh, he sandwiches all of this language in humility. In humility. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We experience God's presence through humility. The humility that leads to us submitting to God and the humility that leads us to repenting from the sin that's in our life. I wanna read about the humility of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, just, just listen to what God's word says and then we'll have a time where we can respond. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be used for his own advantage. So if you and I were God, we would use that deity and the power for our own advantages, but Jesus did not do that. He goes on. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Savior, the King of the world, who spoke everything into existence, humbled himself by becoming a servant, by, by going to the cross. And as we follow him, we are called to the same thing. We're called to a life of humility. And so as we think about God renewing us, renewing Judson Baptist Church, as we think about God renewing you individually, I wanna invite you that the only way it's gonna happen is through God's presence. And the only way you're going to experience God's presence is, is through humility in submitting to him and repenting. And so here in a moment, I'm gonna pray. And uh, our brother's gonna come up and sing. Uh, if you're in the room tonight and you don't know the Lord, the same thing still applies to you. I wanna invite you to humbly turn from sin and self to Jesus. 
and call on the name of the Lord for salvation. If you don't know what that means or if you have more questions about Jesus, we'd be glad to answer those questions. But for many of us in the room, as we think about following Jesus and experiencing his presence, I just wanna call us to repentance and call us to submission through the humility that God needs to birth in our lives so that we can experience God's presence. You can do that here at the altar. You can do that where, where you're at. This is what I told our church this morning. And many people like to do business with God in the pew. That's totally fine. Many of our people do that. I do that. But I think God's given us the altar and I think God's given us these steps and a symbol to respond to God for the church to bear one another's burdens. You know, it's okay for the church to know that not everything's going all right in your life. It's, it's, it's totally fine that that's a reality. And if you were to come down here, people would know to pray for you. Maybe you're in a small group and people already know that. I wanna invite you, as soon as I get through praying, to respond to God exactly how he's calling you this evening. Pray with me. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. God, you're so good to us. God, I thank you. I thank you that you want to be with us. I thank you, God, that you jealously long for us and you long for the spirit that you've made to dwell in us. And God, let us experience your presence through humble submission and humble repentance. God, do business on our hearts and in our lives in this moment. And God, let us see the sin that's in our life God, and put it to death tonight. Let us not leave this place without putting to death the sin that's in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.